This is JudoCast. We go to the mat and beyond with some of the most prominent minds in judo. Please welcome your host, a two-time Pan American champion, entrepreneur, and judo enthusiast, Chuck Jefferson. Our next guest is a lifelong judoka and the CEO of Phoenix Salons. Today, we will hear the story of hard work and determination, a judoka that was able to use the lessons he learned on the mat early in life to pursue a successful career in business. His business endeavors started as a child when he was selling donuts so he can buy his own bicycle. The hard work and passion for success continued as he experimented with multiple business startups while living in the dorms at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. He found a way to balance his studies with full-time judo training, all while experimenting with business ventures along the way. What started as an idea on a napkin after bad service at a restaurant turned into a thriving business that had accounts with national brands all across the country. He eventually sold that company to focus on what is now Phoenix Salons. Over the next eight years, Phoenix Salon Suites has become one of the hottest concepts in franchising. His franchise now boasts almost 300 locations across the country with big growth in the international market coming soon. Please welcome the JudoCast, the CEO of Phoenix Salon Suites, Jason Rivera. Okay, Jason, uh, thank you very much for joining me today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. I've been uh, trying to get together with you for the last couple of months since I started the podcast. I know you're a busy man, and uh, like all of us, we've been impacted in so many ways for with COVID, with uh, you know the judo businesses. For a lot of our listeners, the judo schools are definitely hurt by this, and of course, right. uh, the business that you're part of is is probably been impacted in a really big way, but I do appreciate you spending some time with me today, so uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Uh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So for some of our listeners that may not know, Jason and I grew up in the same era, uh, competing with each other, against each other on what we would call at the time was like rival teams, which is, uh, you know, at the time, like it was so important for us and it was like the, right. the world to us. And now looking back, I kind of miss those days of those things. And I think uh, American judo is is kind of missing those same days when the uh, Olympic Training Center team was at its prime and San Jose State was doing awesome. And, you know, Jimmy's team was just starting to come up and Kitsusai was just coming up. So all those younger programs all were right. just starting to develop. But it was uh, a good time that I think a lot uh, American judo is kind of lacking in some of those those areas that we were able to enjoy. It was a great era to, to be to be a part of back then. And you're you're absolutely right. I, I think when I look back at that time frame, it was San Jose State and uh, OTC and, and, and those two teams, arguably the, the two best teams or squads in the nation back then. And it's interesting to think back, we were rivals, but we all seemed to get along pretty well, you know, in the, in the post-tournament shenanigans or, or whatever it may be. So uh, it's interesting to look back at that era. And I do think judo is missing, missing a little bit of that right now. Yeah, I find myself in conversations about that pretty often with, um, you know, we, we kind of, it's kind of cliche to say like, you know, we're friends, but all, all but the five minutes we're out there together, you know, competing each other, but off the mat, you know, judo is such a small world. We find ourselves traveling together, oftentimes roommates together, you know, in places that, you know, I've, I've had roommates of mine that were competitors of mine nationally, but internationally we end up in the same room somewhere together. Right. So it made me be able to build a bond and a friendship with a lot of people that I was competing with. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it, it's interesting to look at that era and, and think back. And, and I knew doing, doing your podcast here, I started 
reminiscing a little bit uh, about those days in the in the dorm rooms and uh, traveling, and and you meet uh, great people and and establish uh, amazing relationships, and, I, and I'm sure you did too at uh, San Jose State, and um, you know some of those guys that were your teammates, you can call to this day, and and they come out absolutely. So um, I want to go back a little bit and kind of just get your story from the beginning. Um, how old were you when you started judo training? I started judo at the Washington Judo Club. Uh, Jimmy Takamori, uh, Sensei Takamori, was my first instructor. And so this is back in the gosh, late 70s, early 80s is when I started doing judo. Uh, my dad was a judo guy. He, he did judo in the military, um, stopped doing it for quite some time. And then got us all involved at the Washington Judo Club. Uh, gosh, er, early on, I don't even remember not doing judo right. you know, as, a, as a kid. So uh, that's where I got my, my start. And um, I look back to that time period. And it's interesting because Washington Judo Club at that particular time didn't have a whole lot of kids. It was just a few kids, but they were a strong national team. There was a lot of very good players um, on that team and on that squad back then. So uh, very high level Rondori and, and competition. And I remember sitting against the wall as a kid and, and watching some of these battles take place right in front of me. So uh, just a fun time, but that's where I ended up um, starting judo and, and uh, training with uh, Jimmy Takamori and, um, and Gosh, all the daughters were there, Terry and, and Robin, and they were all training there nice. when I was a little kid. So there was uh, just a, a great time. I, I, I used to love going to practice. Um, they had a old building, a, almost like a warehouse, and, and they used to pull the you know pull the garage door down, and, and so it was just a fun fun experience back then. So whatever it was, judo was able to capture your attention or for, for many years, because obviously you did it through your childhood. And then uh, for some of our listeners that don't know, um, you ended up uh, moving to Colorado Springs at some point. I'm assuming after high school, you end up in Colorado Springs and you were part of the uh, Olympic Training Center resident program, which no longer exists today. But that was right. uh, the step that you made. Can you tell us about how you ended up in Colorado Springs and how long you stayed there? There was a period of time where I thought wrestling was going to be my primary sport. Um, so I wrestled a lot through middle school, high school, freestyle, the, the that whole um, nine yards, did, did some judo. Um, and then toward the end of high school, I, I started thinking, you know what, maybe I'll start focusing a little bit more on judo, uh, which is what I did. I, I actually turned down uh, several wrestling scholarships and just started focusing a little bit more um, on judo. I had an opportunity. I don't know how it came about, but I, I got an invitation in the mail to go to the Olympic Training Center. It was during the summer to go to the Olympic Training Center and train with the current uh, national resident team for about a month. And so I had an opportunity to, to live in those guest dorms and train with, with a resident team. So I went out there for four weeks. And while I was there, uh, they were recruiting Kind of a new class, and some of, some of my buddies today, Reno Reeser, Orlando, Atu, Brian Olson was was there at that time. A lot of these guys that I knew were already training, and so the last, honestly, the last two days working out, uh, Eddie Liddy comes up to me and he says, "Hey, uh, I want to put you on the, the squad here," and I said, "Eddie, I'm not 
living in Colorado. You know, I'm from <laughs> DC. I, I need to get back there. I was registered for school. I had my whole training already uh, taken care of. And uh, so I, I made a call home, talked to my dad and said, Hey, uh, I have this opportunity. Eddie wants me to, to, to put in for it. Uh, they have a couple slots here on the national program. On the advice of my dad, he said, you know what? Go ahead and put everything in while you're there. When you get back, then you can make a decision. And so that's what it did. It took like two days. And um, the Olympic Training Center is part of the USOC. So you have to jump through a few hoops and letters of recommendation and tournament records and all these different things. Um, and so I was able to gather all that up and submit it literally flew home on a Saturday, get a call on, I believe it's like Tuesday from Eddie. And he's like, all right, you're in, you got to be here by the end of the week. Um, you, you didn't know that Eddie was into high pressured sales at that time. Did you? No, no, no. <laughs> I was like, um, all right, I'll be there. And Eddie, uh, Eddie to this day is a really close friend of mine almost consider him a second father. He's, he's, uh, has been around me for quite some time and has done a lot for me. And I, I almost was at the point, I didn't want to really go, but I don't think I wanted to let Eddie down, you know? And, right. um, and so it's an interesting time. I was actually funny story. I was actually working, I was in college. I was working at Chuck E. Cheese. Um, and, uh, Eddie tells the story. And so I had to put my work phone number on the application. And Eddie says, when he called, they were like, yeah, Chuck E. Cheese, can I help you? And so <laughs> he said he hung up the phone. He's like, this can't be right. <laughs> so he picks up the phone, dials it back. And then he says, he finally goes, is there a Jason that works there? And they were like, yeah, hold on, I'll, I'll grab him. And so they grab me and, and I pick up the phone and Eddie's just dying laughing on, on the other end. You work at Chuck E. Cheese? Um, and, uh, Were you in the mouse the, costume? I had to do that a few times. Really? Yeah, I had to do it a few times. I, I, I was in college and they were building a brand new Chuck E. Cheese pretty close to our campus. And I thought to myself, you know what? That's a pretty easy place to work at. And so I went in to manage the game room. So that's kind of my function to, to manage the ball crawl and, and all those, those pieces of, of equipment that they have there. And uh, so that's where I ended up uh, spending, a, gosh, about a year and a half working at Chuck E. Cheese while I was in college. Um, but to answer your question, Chuck, yes, uh, there was a few times where the mouse called in and uh, yours truly had to, uh, had to put that costume on. <laughs> and dance for the kids. Um, and then one time I tried to do a backflip in the costume off the stage and crack the entire helmet, the, the head of Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> and needless, needless to say, that's the last time they asked me to, to, to be Chucky. Right. <laughs> I, I think it's really interesting that you, uh, you, you refer to Eddie Liddy and the impact that he made on your life, not only as a judo player, but as, as a human being. And, and even as an adult, you have a close relationship with somebody who made such a big impact on your earlier part of your life. And I think a lot of us have these stories with our senseis and people that that mean, you know, do big things for us. And I think that uh, judo is one of those powerful things and sport in general, when you have the right coaching, but with judo, you're able to, to settle down with a coach for such a long period of time. They end up making this big impact on you, which seems to be a very monumental time in your, 
athletic days, you know, your, your, your late teens to your early twenties, where you're in this peak of your athletic peak of your life. And you're feeling like a man, you're feeling strong. And you have this person that kind of, you know, serve as a guide on, on, on how you can kind of produce as a, not only a judo player, but as, as a person. And Eddie has had that impact on a lot of people because he's been part of the team in Colorado Springs for so long. I totally miss that program not being as, as vital to USA Judo as it could be. And I know there's some things that went wrong or budget issues. There's a, probably a host of different reasons why that program doesn't exist. But I think if that program existed, it could fill a big void in the American Judo program today. No doubt about it. I think when I look back, Back at that that era, back in the 90s, it, it was just a, a great opportunity to train there. You had the not only the, the practice facilities and your teammates were all very good, but you, you had a lot of these other things that you could tap into, whether it's sports med, sports science, or, or these different programs. You had great trainers in the weight room. Um, you had other athletes too, which was uh, kind of a cool thing. So you had got to strike up uh, friendships with yeah, swimmers or, or wrestlers or, or some of these other individuals that understood what you were doing and understood how hard it was to train and um, understood overcoming injuries and, and some of these different things. Um, but it was a, a great program. I, I want to say we, we might have had 20, 25 athletes live in those dorm rooms. Um, right. And so it was just a, a great period of time. And, and it's unfortunate um, that that program went away. I, I think uh, back to that, and, and I think it could be a pivotal place right now in USA Judo for up and coming athletes. It, it's almost like a scholarship. You know, right. you get free room and board, yeah. uh, you get taken care of, and, and it's almost, almost serves like a, like a college scholarship in, in some, some ways. Yeah. So uh, the reason we have you on here today is some of your entrepreneurial success. And, uh, you know, I always want to hit on stories that are related to judo, but also that kind of go outside of judo. And you yeah. found a lot of success in your life in, in business. And I wanted to start back with the, your early days of being a college student and a judo player. And I think that this time frame is a, a vital time for especially American athletes that kind of are scared to kind of throw it all into one basket. You know, we're always told like, You've got to go to school. You've got to do some things. You can't just be a judo player. And I think that that's very good advice, not to say that the traditional means of education is the only thing that you can do, but I think that sure. it's important that you're doing different things. Could you tell us um, your earliest times of like maybe some entrepreneurial spirit? I know that you possibly started your marketing company when you were still a student. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, actually. Yeah. Started that in the dorm room. Um, and even before even before I started that company, I was always an entrepreneur. And, and one of the things that, gosh, I, I sold Krispy Kreme donuts when I was a little kid to buy a bicycle. And it's something my dad made me do. He wouldn't just buy me a bicycle. You had to go earn it. And so a lot of that started early in my life, I think. And when I got to the training center, um, I had a little bit of a setback because I transferred my college credits to the University of Colorado. And unfortunately, a little over a year of credits didn't transfer. So it was like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm back to being a freshman, I guess. Uh, and, and so back then it was, it was okay with me. I, I decided, you know what, I, I'm going to take advantage of the opportunities at the Olympic Training Center. They had grant money that you could take advantage of to go to school they had in-state tuition with the University of Colorado, so you could do some of those functions. 
I never wanted to be, um, I never wanted to leave the training center. If it was two years, three years, five years, whatever it be, and not have nothing to fall back on. So I was very determined to get, um, get my college education done. Um, and I was always an entrepreneur. So even at the dorm rooms, I started all sorts of things. Uh, there was a time I was selling prepaid phone cards to athletes. You know, I was going around and, and back, back then, back in the nineties, I was kind of the cool thing was a prepaid phone card. You could call over the, all over the world. So I had ads up in the dorm rooms and I felt like I was just hustling behind closed doors there. Um, I had a vending room business, um, actually, uh, Orlando Fuentes and, and me, Orly, started a vending group business. And, and I remember early on, we had these big aspirations. Oh my gosh, we're going to have 100 machines or 200 machines. Um, we did the, the gumball machines. So just a, a small vending route right. uh, business. And then we started noticing that all our vending machines are getting ripped off <laughs> and disappearing out of the bars. Uh, so that, that, that business went down in a pipe dream, but I was always doing something. I was always hustling. I was always, uh, I was still going to school. I was working. Um, and so it wasn't just full-time judo training. Um, it's unfortunate because I, I saw a lot of athletes, not only in judo, but just even in other sports. That's all they did when they were at the training center. They just trained. They did nothing else. Um, but at least for me, I was going to school I waited tables. I was trying to get my side business hustle on and I was doing all sorts of things um, to just create that next opportunity for, for myself. And, you know, you don't have everything figured out back, back then. I, I don't think I ever saw myself as an entrepreneur. I was just trying to make some extra money right. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, buy little things uh, while I'm at the dorms there. I wanted to be a, an accountant. I wanted to be a lawyer um, I thought I was going to be an actor early on. Matter of fact, uh, I got an opportunity to be in a movie um, right before I left to the training center. Um, but back then I was like, God, forget that. That can wait. So you always have all these little things going on. But I think deep down inside, it was just being an entrepreneur. Um, and then as it turns out, the last six months or so that I was in the dorm room, six or eight months, I started a marketing company. And literally on a napkin, uh, started this marketing company. And where that idea came from, we started doing market research for restaurant concepts and um, apartment communities and, and hotels and a number of different retail businesses. And I had met my wife, uh, Gina, when I was at the training center. I uh, met her just a few years after I'd been there. And we used to always go to this TGI Fridays restaurant and the service was so bad every time. It was right, right next to her, uh, her town home. And one day I was sitting in there and I said, gosh, there, there's got to be a way for this company to know how bad their service is. Like we always get free food. I'm always complaining. Um, and that's really where the idea came from. And so I went back to my dorm rooms and started typing up reports in my dorm room um, and just started hustling one client at a time. And, uh, and then, you know, the biggest thing I, I would say to anybody out there is take advantage of your relationships um, because there's a lot of people, even in the judo community, that can help you. And actually, Todd Brady, a former judo player, uh, him and his dad gave me my first 
break in the in the world of technology. I started this marketing company uh, from scratch, and I was doing it all by pen and paper. And this is right when the internet was starting to take off. And um, one day at practice, I, I had already been retired, but I would go back to the training center and work out. And one day after practice, Todd was like, "Hey, what, what are you doing now?" So I kind of shared with him the, my idea that I was doing for this marketing company. And he said, you know what, you should put this online. And we ended up having a meeting and they came back to me with some like $30,000 proposal and I didn't have two nickels back then. And, right. uh, but they believed in my concept and they allowed, uh, they built this entire software program for our company. We were one of the first companies to put research online and have it available in 24 hours. And so they built this whole software package for me and just took a percentage of the revenue and and they just believed in me and and my work ethic and uh, believed in my company and and gave me my first break there. And I think we did a couple of of renderings of that software over a couple of periods of time and I was able to pay those things off and really built a a very successful company. Uh, 10 years later, uh, we had 60,000 people in the field uh, doing research for us. Uh, We had big national clients with companies like Red Rabbit International, uh, Circle K convenience stores, um, did a lot of, I'm trying to think of all the brands we worked with, but we worked with a, a number of national um, brands and, um, and over, the, over that 10-year period of time. I remember uh, traveling internationally with some of the guys from Colorado Springs. And even in your early days of when you just first started, you were employing a lot of the guys at the training center to go out and I guess do the reviews of the restaurants. Is that what was going on? That's that's what it was. So I, I started recruiting these guys. Hey, you know, go go in and, and eat in these restaurants here. And you got to fill out this report um, online. I'm going to pay you a few bucks to do it. You're going to get a free meal. And uh, um, so, yeah, a, a lot of those a lot of those guys back then were were making some dollars on the side and, and getting some free meals. So it was, it was fantastic. Very cool. So what would you tell a uh, would-be entrepreneur, maybe a early 20-something uh, judo player that has some entrepreneurial spirit? Could you share with us a little bit about some of your failures and how you just continue to thrive? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think what happens is most people are scared to fail. You've got to take your judo background a little bit into this. Not very many of us win hundreds of matches in a row. A lot of times you're going to lose in a tournament, you're going to lose a match, but you got to get back up. You got to put your key back on. You got to keep fighting. You got to keep training. And I think I took that same approach into business. You know, if my vending route business, it, it didn't succeed. But if I would have went, you know what? I suck. I'm never going to be an entrepreneur. I don't think it, I would have created some of these opportunities that we have you know, to this day. And so I think for a young entrepreneur, try a lot of different things. You don't know what's going to work. I even treated my kids like that. You know, Phoenix, our oldest son, he's 17. I had him start in judo because there was no other sport when he was four or five years old. But he gravitated toward football, hockey, basketball. And I was just a big fan of letting him try all these different things and then see where he gravitates toward. And then fast forward to today, I think he's going to end up being a a very good golfer and, and have an opportunity to play in college and maybe even at the professional level. And so I think business is a little bit like that for young entrepreneurs equated to your judo life. You're not going to win every match, but you got to get up. You got to keep training. You got to keep fighting. And then something will, will happen. You know, something will happen that you might naturally gravitate towards just like my son gravitated toward golf. 
I gravitated toward this marketing company. And honestly, back then, I was, I was laughing. I was like, ah, oh, this is crazy. If I can make $500 extra a month and get a couple of free meals, this is kind of cool. You know, I can take my girlfriend out to eat for free. And, right. uh, yeah. Next thing you know, we're doing thousands and thousands of, of reports every, every month for some big, big companies. Um, and so I would say never give up. And even when I started that marketing company and things started to move forward a, a little bit, I had so many doors slammed in my face. I used to beat the streets in downtown Colorado Springs, just a couple of blocks from the Olympic training center. I used to just beat the streets and it was no after no, after no, after no. And, um, again, if I would have gave up, I would have never got my first big break for a contract. Um, I was downtown Colorado Springs and there was a restaurant company called Concept Restaurants. Uh, they own a place called Jose Muldoon's, The Ritz, a lot of these iconic brands uh, downtown. So I used to approach every single restaurant. Hey, I got the service. I think it's going to make a difference. Um, every single general manager would tell me, give me the information. I'll give it to a gentleman by the name of Dave Lux, who owned Concept Restaurants. Um, and so I would follow up and it was just no, no, no. And one day I'm just beating the streets, downtown Colorado Springs, see a sign that says concept restaurants. Screw it. <laughs> I open the door and I go in and I see this big guy at the copy machine and I go, Hey, are you Dave Lux? And he goes, yeah, what can I do for you? I said, look, I'm a, I'm a former Olympic training center athlete. I have this marketing company and I would just love about 10 minutes of your time. And he said, yeah, absolutely. And so I ended up meeting with Dave. And the reason I got that meeting is because Dave's right-hand man was on the Olympic team handball team. Okay. And so he believed, he believed in athletes. And as it turns out, I ended up getting all of Dave's restaurants. Uh, Dave also founded a concept called Old Chicago, which is big in the Midwest, uh, and was on the board of directors for Rock Bottom Restaurants. And I did work for Dave for a few months. He ended up putting me in touch with Old Chicago. I got my first big restaurant concept, which allowed me to go into that company full time. And then that triggered a, a lot of other opportunities. But it was really that background in judo, just not giving up, not taking no for an answer and just keep keep plugging away, you know, keep plugging away. Um, and so that's what I would tell a, a young judo cut today that wants to be an entrepreneur try it. What do you have to lose? You know, you can always go back and get a job somewhere, uh, but, but never give up. As many of your coaches and senseis over the years have told you, judo can serve as a model for the way that you live your life. It provides life lessons that can shape the way you face problems and the way you make decisions. As Jason mentioned earlier, not too many of us go undefeated in judo. But we learn from our losses and we're encouraged to use those lessons to propel us into a positive direction. His never give up attitude that he learned on the mat helped him face rejection and other hardships in business, driving forward until he eventually found success. Of course, with judo training, we become accustomed to hard work and doing everything it takes to succeed. In the next segment, we're going to dive into his more recent and much larger success story. That is the story of Phoenix Salon Suites, one of the fastest growing franchises in the country. We will hear the story of how Jason and his team put together a corporate office on a one-week notice. This eventually led to Gina Rivera becoming part of one of the most popular shows for The Undercover Boss, which is a two-time Emmy Award-winning reality series. This opportunity catapulted the brand exposure and Phoenix Salon Suites, and from that point forward, Phoenix has seen explosive growth all around the country. 
Phoenix is the, the name of our 17-year-old son that I mentioned earlier. Um, and long story short, uh, back in, I got to say, Gina's going to kill me, but I, I think it was 95, 1995 is uh, when I met my wife, Gina. Um, and she was a hairstylist, uh, an Italian hairstylist. And one of the things that attracted me to, to Gina was she was Miss Independent. Um, she, she, she knew who she was. She was very independent. At that time, she was renting a booth in a salon. At a, uh, uh, She was working seven days a week, bell to bell, and was a very talented hairdresser. Now, Gina's background is she grew up in the salon industry. Uh, there's 27 hairdressers in her family. Wow. Uh, dad, mom, aunts, uncles. So she grew up in that salon industry. Um, and she has kind of a, a, a rebellious background, which is very interesting. Um, she actually dropped out of high school at 17 years old and just knew from day one she's going to be a stylist. Uh, and every time she kind of has my mentality, everybody told her no, and she just kept doing it and, and kept doing it. And so at 17, she moved from Colorado to Arizona spent three years in Arizona, really just going from salon to salon. Back then, um, this is in the, the late 80s, you could work in a salon without a cosmetology license, you could apprentice. Uh, and so that's what she was doing in, in Arizona and, um, and running around kind of wild as a 17-year-old, uh, but eventually made her way back to Colorado at the age of 20, 21, ended up getting her cosmetology license and then shortly after that is, is when, when we met. Um, and uh, on, a, on a side note, uh, Gina wrote an autobiography last year called A Mirror and a Prayer. And it's really her life story because it is very interesting. Uh, a lot of ups and downs. She almost got killed and just overcoming tragedy and, and different things. Uh, but that autobiography is being written into a screenplay. Wow, um, very and cool. So, so, yeah, so Salon's the... Gina Rivera story um, will hopefully be made into a, a movie here in the next couple of years. So we're very excited about, about that. I, I think it's a, a great story of inspiration and triumph. And you know, she has a signature look, her, her blonde mohawk. Um, and there's the story to why she has that, that look. Um, and so, so hopefully uh, some exciting news there that, that will happen over the next couple of years here. Um, but anyways, getting back to Phoenix salons, uh, Gina comes back, she becomes a cosmetologist, uh, meets me and she, we get married. She ends up, uh, getting pregnant with our son Phoenix and goes into labor two weeks early. At that time, again, she's just renting a booth at a local salon, goes to the hospital while she's in the hospital there. The salon owner gets in touch with her and says, Hey, you missed your booth rent payment. What's happening? And, uh, Gina, apologize. I'm sorry. I, I missed. Uh, I'm sorry for missing that payment. I just had my son unexpectedly. Owner says congratulations. However, can you have your dad or husband bring down that booth rent check? Wow. So you can keep your booth while, while you're on maternity leave. Um, honestly, you, you just don't tell an Italian hairdresser that. <laughs> so, uh, she was furious. And um, right there in the hospital room, she was taking three months off to be with the baby. And right there in the hospital room, um, she said, I'm done. I'm, I'm not going back. And my company was doing pretty well at that time. And I was an entrepreneur. I said, Gina, go open up your own salon. And so she went around Colorado Springs looking for retail space. During that search, she came across a 1,500 square foot 
just an ordinary salon that was struggling. It was in the red. Um, Gina literally met with that owner on a Friday, ended up purchasing that salon the following Sunday and taking that salon over. And she changed the name of that salon to Phoenix Salon after her six-week-old son. So Phoenix was about six weeks old at, at that time. And so she had that for about four years and would come home every day and just complain. You know, it's hard to manage all these different stylists. She probably had about a dozen stylists working there. They, they would complain in, in, in different things. Um, and so I told her to sell it. I said, Gina, just sell it and, and go back to renting a booth somewhere. Um, and she said, you know what? Maybe I'm going to do that. And uh, a couple of weeks went by and she came home and she said, Jason, there's 4,500 square feet of space in my shopping center. I think I want to sign a lease on it. And <laughs> I was like, what wait are you doing? <laughs> yeah, wait, wait what, what are you talking about? There you were selling it. And she said, you know what? She had a, a, you know, kind of one of those moments in life. And she said, you know what? I was talking to my mom and I was reminded of the way my mom worked when I was a little girl. My mom, my mother had her own private suite or private room in the back of a salon. And when I was a little girl, I used to play salon and, um, and she used to rave on how much she loved it. It was like her own private salon and nobody bothered her. The owner could care less. Um, and it was just her own private facility. And so she said, I'm going to take that 4,500 square feet and build a bunch of individual salon suites and license those out to professionals. And maybe they'll leave me alone. I'll take one. And maybe uh, the rest of them will take it and, and they'll leave me alone. And honestly, got true, Chuck. I, I said, uh, so Gina, that's the dumbest idea I think I've ever heard. <laughs> and, uh, I don't think professionals are, are going to work this way. And, um, and so I think just to prove me wrong, she rolled up her sleeves. A friend of ours was an architect. Her and her mom got to work. And in 2007, the first Phoenix Salon Suites was open. Uh, that location had 22 suites inside of it. Uh, it was 100% full on opening day. And uh, within wow. a couple months, within a couple months, um, it was on like a 30-person wait list and, uh, to get into that facility. And so, um, at that point in time, she decided to do a second store. And so she went two miles down the road, started construction, ground up 7,000 square feet, started construction in 2008. Right when she starts construction is when the housing crisis happened. Right. And so we lost credit lines. Uh, my company overnight lost a half a million dollars in contracts. And it was a little scary time. And so we had this, this second store under construction. Uh, we're, we're, you know, trying to, to rob Peter to pay Paul and try to figure this out. But, but we pressed forward. She pressed forward. Got that second location open in uh, 2009, still right in the middle of that recession. Uh, that second location became successful. Um, and then I was like, wow, you know what? Maybe she's on to something. And, um, at that time I, I, uh, my company was about 10 years old and I ended up, uh, fortunately I, I, we had some setbacks in, in that recession, but I ended up building a lot of those contracts back. You know, again, it's just kind of like judo, you know, I didn't, I didn't want that setback to, to, to keep me underwater. And so I ended up just working my, my tail off, you know, it was 80 hours a week and just 
building that company back up and, and getting all that revenue that was lost. And, um, and so once I had built that company back up, Gina came to me one day and she said, look, I, I want to grow Phoenix. I don't want to stop doing hair. Um, will you help me? And so I ended up uh, selling my company and uh, taking the reins of, of Phoenix as CEO and growing Phoenix Salon Suites to where we're at today. Uh, so fast forward to today, uh, we have uh, 285 locations open uh, all across the country. Uh, we just did a deal for 75 units in the United Kingdom. Uh, so we're going to be wow. expanding uh, internationally as well. Uh, and so it's it's been uh, quite a quite a ride, um, but it's it's been a fun ride. I think you skipped a very large chunk of important information right in the middle of that story, and it's it's really cool that Gina was able to identify her own personal passion remaining as a stylist because that's where she really wanted to be, yeah. and she was able to somehow rope in her husband to I assume sell your company and help take Phoenix to the next level. So. You're at two locations and then you jumped to 285. So I want to hear a little bit about uh, some of the challenges sure. that that happened during that time. When you first took over as CEO with two locations, was it immediately in your vision that you were going to be even close to the level you're at today? No, <laughs> absolutely not. So, you know, when I took over um, in, my, in my previous company, I worked a lot with franchise companies. Um, working with franchisees, working with franchisors, I had a, a lot of experience in the world of franchising. And I thought to myself, you know, the best way for us to grow is through franchising. And so me and Gina sat down and I said, Gina, I think the way we can grow is through continuing to build corporate stores, uh, but also through franchising. Uh, and so when we had two stores, she was already starting on a third store downtown Colorado Springs, another one outside of Orlando, Florida. Um, and so we had already, she had already had a couple of stores being developed as well, but she loved doing hair. And so she, she understood the side, but she really, her, her vision was to stay very grounded to the industry. She did not want to be a straight business person and lose sight of what it is to be a stylist. Um, and so that's when I came over and I thought, you know what, we should start growing through franchising. And so I, I put that in, in place. Franchising is heavily regulated. It's regulated by the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, you have to, to do a franchise disclosure document, franchise agreements and so forth. So I was putting all those documents together and really working on the structure of the franchise program. And I remember back then I, I was like, man, it'd just be cool if we sold 10. Right. You know, if, I, if I could open 10 franchise units, this would be really, really cool. Um, and then it just, it really just started to take off. And uh, as more customers started coming into our stores, they were looking at, wow, this is a really cool concept. I want to get one of these stores. And back then we grew pretty fast because we were in the recession. And this industry, particular, the salon industry, and we call it the lifestyle industry, which is beauty, health, wellness, appearance, is a very strong and stable industry. It's almost, it's very recession resistant. Right. Um, if you think about it, um, anyone in the 
world of beauty, health, wellness, appearance that's providing those services. It can't be replaced by technology. So an iPhone app is never going to give you a haircut and and highlights. So back in that recession, there's a lot of empty shopping centers. Um, but our, our concept and our, our industry was, was still pretty strong. So we were going in and getting great real estate deals with, with landlords because our average size location is about 5,500 square feet. And we'll bring in about 3,500 customers a month. And, uh, so I remember that first year we started, I believe I put the paperwork together in 2010, sold the first franchise location in 2011 first franchise store gets open in 2012. And again, I thought, man, I'd be lucky to sell 10 of these. And in 2012, I want to say we did 30 something locations. Can you tell us a little bit about your concept? I mean, this industry has been around forever. Like you said, it's a, it's almost recession proof. People are still cutting their hair and taking care of their appearance and these things, even in, even in down times, what is it that you, as a a leader of the business that you found, how did you find a way to separate yourself and, and differentiate yourself from the competitors? There's obviously salons all over the country. There's lots of hairstylists. What is it that Phoenix was able to do that, that made you unique to give you this growth opportunity? Yeah. So I think it's two sides. Uh, Number one is, is the building of an individual suite. So we'll take a, for example, we'll take 5,500 square feet and we'll build out 27, 28 individual suites. These individual suites will operate as a mini salon. And so a professional can come in and rent that suite from us, license that suite from us uh, virtually on a monthly basis and own and operate their own business. And so that's really the caveat of this is Gina really changed the industry and created thousands of entrepreneurs. So right now inside the Phoenix system, we have about 9,000 professionals that license suites from us all across the country. And so really she created 9,000 entrepreneurs. And so she gave uh, professionals a chance to own and operate their own business at a fraction of the cost. And the way she she would always put it to me is, look, when I'm in beauty school, I'm always thinking um, I want to own my own salon. I want to own my own salon. But the problem is most stylists, most professionals, they don't have the resources to uh, go and open up their own salon. And a lot of times the minimum square footage is about a thousand square feet in a shopping center. So you got to rent out that thousand square feet. You got to sign a five-year lease or a 10-year lease. You might have to put in 50 to a hundred thousand dollars to build out that location. Typically, you're not going to make it by yourself. So now you got to hire two or three stylists to generate enough of revenue to pay the overhead. And so really, she just switched the dynamic and gave entrepreneurship on an individual level. So that's first and foremost, the, the, the way our concept is different from salons all over the country. And then we have competitors within our space, but no one has the deep roots that Gina and her family has to this industry. And so she has great empathy for the industry. And I think um, that's our entire mission and vision of our company is to always have empathy for our consumer. Our consumer really is that professional renting that, that space. So everything she does uh, within our company from the top down is really centered on that professional, centered on that customer. Um, and Gina's one of them. And uh, so we're not some big, you know, joint venture company or, or just a couple of business, you know, guys that had this idea and created something. I mean, she honestly knows 
what it feels like to be behind a chair for 12 hours a day. She honestly understands what it feels like to have children in an industry where there's no maternity leave, um, to work your, your tail off during those holidays. Um, so she has deep roots to that industry. And so everything she does is really for, for that professional. So professionals, they tend to gravitate toward her. They want to be a part of her brand and, and they want to support her. And they're very thankful for the opportunity the opportunity that was created for them. So Phoenix Salons, with your leadership, has been fortunate enough or smart enough to utilize Gina, the brainchild behind the concept, as an icon. As business leaders, you hear a lot of motivational speakers and you talk about perseverance and and a lot of entrepreneurs and and business executives will talk about, you know, maybe a big break or sometimes it's just, it's luck. But I I don't like to say it's luck because it's like you said earlier, it's pounding the pavement and putting yourself in positions to become luckier. In the judo world, we used to say, the harder you train, the luckier you're going to get. You know, some people say, oh, he got an easy round, you know, well, that easy round happened with lots of hard work in the gym. And I think that you guys have put that, that work in obviously over the years, but, uh, you and I spoke briefly before about what could possibly have been your big break moment was when you were able to uh, do the undercover boss with Gina. If you can, uh, share a little story with the undercover boss. Some people may have seen that show. A lot of the people in the judo world saw it when you posted it on social media, those of us that follow you, but, uh, that was a pretty unique and interesting situation. If you can kind of let us know how that went. I think you, you did a great analogy, um, with, uh, yeah, the, the harder you work, the luckier you get. And, and that's probably what happened here. Honestly, we started building stores in, in California, uh, company that produces undercover boss studio Lambert is uh, based right here in orange County. Uh, what, what happened there is I believe uh, a couple producers uh, went into one of our stores and, and got services done, just started doing some research and were like, wow, this is a really cool concept. Um, and so that's how they came into contact with Phoenix. Uh, my vice president of marketing and branding is uh, Sherry Wilson. Yeah, we all know Sherry. Sherry, Sherry yeah. yeah. So everyone knows, knows Sherry and a teammate of mine at the Olympic Training Center and um, I had recruited Sherry uh, years ago to just work on a, on a project. She's very good in, in the event space. And we were looking to put on our first convention and she did a fantastic and, and wonderful job for us. And so that relationship fostered and here we are today. She's my uh, vice president of marketing and branding. And she calls me one day and she said, Jason, uh, you heard of that show Undercover Boss? I'm like, yeah, I've seen a few episodes. She said, uh, they want to talk to us. I thought about it for a second and, you know, I'm not, not interested. I, you know, I'm just, I don't think we're interested in that. And yeah, you know, she called me back again. She said, look, they really want to talk to you. And I said, Sherry, the, the problem we're going to have is technically we don't have a whole lot of employees. Um, I think at that time we had about 50 locations, uh, maybe about 1500 stylists, but they all work for themselves. So anyways, long story short, um, we were building a store in Colorado Springs at this time. The store we were building, the plan was, it was about 7,000 square feet. We, we owned the real estate on it, so we were building it ground up. We were going to put our corporate headquarters on the top of this building. Um, and it hadn't started construction yet. At that time, all of the employees were working um, from home. Everybody was working remotely. And so um, finally, I agreed. I said, yeah, you know what? I'll talk to him. Sherry calls me back maybe a few weeks later. It's literally on a Tuesday. And she said, Jason, um, they're flying out here to meet with us on Monday. 
and uh, they want to meet with you and Gina. And I said, okay, that's fine. She said, I got a problem. I go, what's that? She said, they want to meet in our office. (laughs) And I was like, well, we don't have an office. And she said, I think we should put an office together. And uh, we literally went to work. We ended up finding about 4,000 square feet of office space. And it was an absolute dump. So this is Tuesday. I literally signed this lease on on Thursday, a one-year lease. And we had crews come in and I'm talking to rip up carpet, repaint. We hired judo kids that were down at the training center. We hired everybody we could possibly think of. I don't know how we got it done, but we had brand new office equipment. Um, We had uh, big giant pictures of Gina's family in the lobby. And uh, literally for four days there, just everybody went to work and Monday morning, you could still smell the paint dry. Right. Uh, we, we, we didn't even have a receptionist at that time. And, and so we hired a model to sit at the front desk there. Right. Uh, and um, yeah, here they come in at, at 10 o'clock. They were supposed to meet with myself and, and Gina for about an hour. And so we went back into our office. Uh, that one hour turned into about five hours. And uh, it, it was almost three o'clock and, and our kids were getting out of school at four. And I said, look, we want to go see your house. Uh, so we went home and, and took them to our house. Our kids got off of school. And it was just really two ladies, one with a camera and, and one asking a bunch of questions. Um, and then they left. And we really never heard from them again. And about a month or two went by and um, get a phone call. They wanted a few more questions answered, answered a few more questions about a, two weeks after that went by. Um, I get another phone call. And as it turns out, we ended up keeping our office and it's really cool for, for a couple of years. Uh, and so I get another uh, a phone call from, from our receptionist it's like, Hey, uh, you know, the studio Lambert's on the line. And uh, so I pick it up and uh, I'm on speakerphone. And I hear everybody start to cheer and it's, Hey, you're going to be on season six of undercover boss. And I'm like, well, okay, wait, wait a second. What's going <laughs> on? And, um, and so he, Gina was actually at the, at one of, at, at the salon doing hair at that time. And so, uh, he said, uh, we don't want you, Jason. We want Gina. And, uh, I knew right then and there, I was like, Oh, this is going to be a tough one yeah. because Gina doesn't like TV. She doesn't like that part of it. She doesn't really, she doesn't like that limelight. And so uh, I ended up calling her at, at, at her little suite there. And I said, Hey, uh, um, and she would come by the office. So she, back then she was doing hair about three days a week, I think. And then she spent two or three days at their office. And so I called her, I said, Hey, look, um, undercover boss, wants us to, to, to film. And, um, and she was so excited. She was like, Oh my God, I can't wait to see how they dress you up and you know, what you're going to wear and what you're going to look like. And I said, Judah, no, that they, they want you. And yeah. she's like, no, I'm not doing it. And uh, it took <laughs> some convincing. Um, and uh, she finally, as we like to say in the sporting world, took one for the team and uh, went out and, and did it uh, and, and did that show she actually traveled, um, I think it was uh, 9,000 miles in seven days. 
um, wow. all over the, the country. It was uh, it was a big production, about 35 producers and, and staff members. Uh, and before you know it, uh, they were at our house in the bushes and filming. And um, it was really a, a quite a quite a whirlwind uh, tour. Um, but she she went in and uh, went in and, and like a champ and did that show. And um, and it really changed her. Honestly, it, it actually turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Uh, it turned out to be one of their most popular episodes in the entire history of that show. So when it comes to growth, your eyes are obviously big now because I think you see and you've experienced the capability and the potential of your brand. Can we talk a little bit about scaling? Um, In the beginning, I think entrepreneurs always have a little bit of trouble with scaling their business, you know, kind of almost in some ways giving up control or or hiring the right person. You know, there's only so much you can do as an individual. You and Gina are are doing this on your own in the beginning. And at some point, you've got to bring people and you hired Sherry, you hired different people. And at some point, it's probably some difficult decisions that you had to make to scale to get to this level? Yeah, our goal right now is to continue to, to grow the brand. And we, we hired a, a president and chief operating officer of our franchise company uh, about a year and a half, two years ago. Uh, he's done a fantastic job. So it's just, as you grow, you got to make sure you put in the right infrastructure, uh, the right team. Me and Gina are very busy, so we don't like to micromanage. So we want to make sure we have the right team in place, the right VPs, uh, doing exactly what they need to do. So we spent some time over the last uh, year and a half working a little bit on our infrastructure, making sure we have the right team in place. And then now it's it's putting the fir- foot on the gas again and continuing to grow. So right now our, our mission is to a thousand locations. Um, that's kind of our, our goal right this second is to open a thousand locations Um not only here domestically, but around the world. Um, I had a, I had a, uh, a good piece of advice early on in, in my career. And, and this goes back to Dave Lux with Concept Restaurants. I, I gave him my break. Um, as I was growing, one of the things that I did, um, and I think any young entrepreneur or any young um, athlete can even do is uh, always ask questions. And so when I got some of these big accounts, I made it a point to go try to see if I can meet for lunch once a year or twice a year, um, meet with these CEOs and, and presidents of these different companies and just pick their brain a little bit and figure out what I could do better and, and so forth. And um, even when we had Red Robin International with 700 stores, you know, that president, we would meet twice a year. And I was young back then and um, I'm still young now. Don't get me wrong. Right. <laughs> but I was young back then. And, and I think uh, these these older guys, they, they liked it. They, they liked to give their knowledge to, to young people. So I got a p- piece of advice um, on the Phoenix side early on uh, from, from Dave Lux. Even when I was getting into the salon side, I was still asking questions and, and doing things. Um, and he said, look, you know, as you grow, you, you got to bring in a, a right-hand man and you got to bring in somebody you can trust. Uh, because you're not going to be able to do it all on your own. And, and you and Gina both are not going to be able to do it all on, on your own. And right about store four, I, I recruited a childhood friend of mine um, that I grew up with, uh, Jerry Griffith, who's now our third in command, senior executive vice president. Um, and he was single at the time. He was living in Memphis, Tennessee. We were building this store in, in Orlando, Florida. And, and I said, Jerry, uh, uh, he was with Enterprise Rental Car. Um, uh, corporate. 
And uh, I knew he didn't like it too much. And I said, hey, look, you remember the salon thing we're doing? Uh, um, I, I, we're going to need a right-hand guy in the future. I, I would like you to, to move to Orlando and run this store and learn everything you can about this business because I think Gina's on to something here. Um, and, and trust is a big thing. And without hesitation, he packed up from Memphis and moved to uh, Altamont Springs, Florida, just right outside Orlando. And, and he believed in, in me and Gina and, and realized our vision early on and, and took, took, uh, took grains of the company still with us today. And, um, and so, you know, early on, you, you got to do a little of those things. I, I'm, I used to be a control freak and I wanted to do everything. But as I got older, I realized I'm going to work myself to death. And uh, so we wanted to put some of those things in place as, as we grow and uh, grow the company. And those are hard decisions. Those are tough decisions when you're growing anything to take a step back. Sometimes you got to take a step back. You might have to take a little less money and that's okay. Uh, right. But to put some of this infrastructure um, in, in place and, and do some things that, that you know will pay dividends later. Right. Uh, for example, one, one of the things that, that I've always said from day one is um, make God and family your business. Never make business your God and family, and you'll be very successful. And what I meant by that is we never wanted our kids to grow up and go, wow, that's really cool. Phoenix salons, a thousand locations, and my name's on the sign, but I never saw my parents. You know, I never knew right. who they were. And so sometimes you got to make those strategic decisions early on to take, take that load off of you so that you can be around um, for your kids. And honestly, to this day, with opening all those stores, um, we were at 99% of every one of our kids' activities from Pop Warner football to AAU basketball on the golf course. We really built our entire schedule just making sure we're we're there for um, for our children and make sure we see them grow up and and see how hard we work and and maybe be able to take some of those same um, disciplines that that we have done. And I used to think back, I, I would go to to Phoenix's Pop Warner football practice. I went to every single one of his practices when he was eight nine years old. And um, sometimes I'm the only parent out there. And here we right. are trying to grow grow a national brand and. And when I was at that side, Gina was at our younger son priest practice. And um, I used to think, and I'm sitting out here and this is in Colorado. So it'd be snow, it would be rain. And um, and I'd stand out there and watch him practice for two hours and um, just to be a part of that. And, and so I, I think you got to also have a fine balance in life as you are an entrepreneur. You know, don't sacrifice your family uh, for, for your company. You can do all those things and just be very strategic and, and long-term thinking uh, when you are trying to build something. Yeah, that's that's amazing advice, I think, for everybody out there. And it's fortunate for you that you were able to get such good advice early. And I think that one thing, and, and for the most part, I see it a lot with successful people, is the ability to hold the ladder for the next person that's trying to come up. You know, And most successful entrepreneurs seem to be intrigued with helping others. And I think that that's important, especially for a lot of our listeners that are, you know, younger judo players that are focusing on judo, but I think that having conversations with someone like you that, you know, was a judo player at the highest level in the United States, and then you, you took the same ambition and determination that you had on the mat, and you kind of found your way in life. Jason Rivera and his wife, Gina, and the Phoenix brand have become a national success story. 
and the international market is now in sight. This kind of growth does not come easy. It started with a hairstylist that had a big dream. That dream was put into play by a man who supported his wife and her vision. Nothing was handed out. Everything they earned and accomplished came with hard work, often through turbulent times. Both Gina and Jason have put the work in, and they were both willing to learn new things along the way. For those of you that know Jason, you know he's always been willing to give back to his community. He was a volunteer for a high school wrestling program. He was even a volunteer coach at the Olympic Training Center for the Judo program. What some of you may not know is that he spent eight years on the USA Judo Board of Directors. Being part of the board is a mostly thankless job, done by people who love judo, or love power, or maybe both. Jason was one that did it for the love of the game. During his time, American Judo arguably had some great success with the likes of Ronda Rousey, Marty Malloy, Kayla Harrison, and Travis Stevens all fighting for international medals at the world and Olympic level. In our final segment, we will talk a little bit about judo in America. What can we do to grow? Can judo be franchised? Jason will tell us a little bit about his experience while working for the USA Judo Board of Directors, and then he'll offer some advice on where he sees growth opportunity for the sport of judo in the United States. Could you share with us um, a little bit of experience that you had with USA Judo, maybe some of the good, some of the bad? I mean, you know, a lot of times we're talking about Judo and is is it just money? Some There's the thought that like we just need money. That's all we really need. I think there's obviously more than just money, although money makes a big difference. But, you know, where is our leadership missing? Where is it that you see that we could maybe make changes as a successful entrepreneur how can judo treat itself more like a successful business to kind of grow our sport around the country? And it was an interesting time. So I, I got, got an opportunity, I, I believe, I think Kayla won twice when I was there. Uh, Travis got his medal, Marty. Um, and so it was an interesting period of, of time. Uh, what I can say, much like our environment today, there is a lot of politics you know, that, that, go, that goes on at that level, you know, at that level and, and being part of the board of directors. I do think we did a good job. Um, I think in some areas uh, we could have done a lot better. I think we could have capitalized on some of these opportunities to get a little more exposure to judo. You know, I mean, here we have, uh, you know, for the first time an an Olympic gold medalist in in the sport uh, and we were doing well on, on that, that level, probably much like it is today. The biggest sponsor of USA judo is, is the USOC. That's, right. that's where the bulk of the money comes from. Yep. Uh, and so having to appease the USOC presents a different different challenge as well and a different obstacle. Yes, it would be much easier if uh, USA Judo had another source of, of revenue. I mean, really, the majority of their budget comes from, comes from the USOC. And every year, that budget from the USOC got smaller and smaller. And so but we were winning medals, you know, so something was, was going, going on there. Right. And so, yeah, money, unfortunately it, it is what it is. You know, money is what is needed in this sport. Um, I do think there are some opportunities that can definitely be capitalized on. They were hitting in that direction a little bit and it, it, it didn't go all the way through and, and opportunities is what I mean by with MMA, you know, the increase in, in mixed martial arts, it's super popular and even jujitsu is, is very, very popular. Right. So capitalizing on some of those opportunities and some of those relationships. And I think you do have to treat your stars different. 
you yeah. know, in this, in this sport. And there's a way to do that and, and get them out in the field to be a representative of judo. And, and I think a lot of that has to also be done at the grassroots level, but you have to tie into certain areas. And unfortunately some didn't want to tie into the mixed martial arts right. world yeah. um, to, to drive the interest and drive the membership base that, that way, you know, is always viewed as we're staying away from that. You know, we're, we're pure right. judo and, and I get it. Everybody wants to be pure judo, but at the same time, you know, I watch UFC just like everybody else and you see a big throw, the crowd goes just as wild as a, as a knockdown. Right. And so I, I think there were some missed opportunities, you know, early on in, in that realm. Uh, but I do think uh, the sport can can grow. I mean, I, I honestly think it can grow and um, and definitely, you know, appreciate you as one of the former elite athletes, you know, starting your your dojo and and continuing to 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 drive and, and build the sport that way as as well. I think is a, a tremendous opportunity. Um, I think there could be a, a plan, almost a franchise system. You know, USA judo um taekwondo does this and yeah. so um i think there are possibly a lot of former elite athletes maybe they're on the national roster um that love this sport but might not have the playbook to how do i start a dojo what what do i do and so i think there could be a grassroots franchise effort to to grow this sport for former athletes because you know chuck you you run a dojo um there's a business side to it. Sure. You know, there, there's, there's business curriculum, um, you know, even technology aspects and, and so forth. So in the world of franchising, you buy into a system, right? Should be told what we do. It's not rocket science. I mean, honestly, it's not rocket science. You find a space, you can build this, you can do it. It's the system that you're buying into and it's the brand that you're buying into. And so there is something significant about USA Judo, that USA and that branding ability. Um, and so I would like to see some resources go that way and develop a system. I think you can franchise the system, um, much like us. I mean, we pay a franchise fee. Uh, I'm sorry, our franchisees pay a franchise fee to us to get into the system they pay us a monthly royalty, but they get part of national branding, different things and, and growing up of, of the company. So I do think there could be something like that in place, um, especially with the popularity of, of mixed martial arts. Yeah, through, through my own business, I mean, I've seen that judo can be a successful business. A lot of people, you know, unfortunately, it's a lot of the older generation that have this thought of like, judo is not about money and it couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, anything that's worth your time and has value is worth money, in my opinion. But if you charge a fair and reasonable market rate for your judo classes and there's enough money to pay your instructors and to possibly fund some trips and have the ability for your coaches to go to the junior nationals without spending their own, you know, their yeah. own money. You know, there's all these little things that if you just professionalize on some level. So I think you're really onto something with the idea of a franchise. I know the franchising itself is extremely complicated and very well regulated, but as far as what you're buying into, you're buying into a system, like you said, and you're buying into a system that's proven typically. And most people without that system are lacking the discipline to do what you said is not rocket science. And we all know it's not rocket science, but sometimes trying to find that system on your own is a challenge. And it and you go in there as an entrepreneur, you're alone. Having that franchise or some kind of guide, somebody to be with you, to, to be a group, to be a support center 
for your judo program yeah. can, can encourage people. I think there needs to be more conversations from the governing body telling people, hey, you know, you can actually earn a living doing judo. I'm not saying that yeah. you should go into judo if you want to get rich, but if you love judo, you can earn a living doing it. And I, I know this because I do it myself. And I also am part of lots of groups of people that are doing it. You know, the, the traditional judo world we all grew up in is not that way. But I think that that's the direction that judo needs to go if it's going to thrive in this capitalistic society that, that we're in. So, I mean, I would love to sit down with you and really hash out some things that yeah. judo as a whole could do, you know, with your franchising experience. And I think there's somewhere to go with that. I think there's a big opportunity and you want to make judo fun again. You know, and I think maybe the older generation, it's all about competitive judo, competitive judo, competitive judo. And I mean, you know, Chuck, I mean, your, your body's wear out and, nice. uh, you know, and, you know, you got old injuries. It seems like I wake up and I'm like, what's wrong with my hand? You know, right. what's, you know, what's wrong with this today? And, it, but I think you can, you, you can take this sport you can make it a business and you can do some really cool things in my opinion to get membership up, but make it fun, make it fun for kids as an exercise activity, make it fun. And, and for, you know, uh, mothers and, and their kids to, to come and kind of do an aerobics, almost judo class, but it, they're part of this. They learn some, some things. You don't have to go and compete in nationals and all these tournaments, but you can make it fun and, and, and keep them motivated and, and do some of those things. But again, it's just having that system and having that playbook in place and then having the resources. So even for us, when our franchisee is in trouble, they can pick up the phone. They know they can get a, a hold of one of our directors and walk through that situation. If they need help marketing, they can pick up the phone and, hey, this is what I'm doing. And, and how can I get uh, more interest in my location so we can help them out with that? But I think we have that USA Judo has that mechanism. And if you had that growing across the country, I think there is a tremendous opportunity to, to grow the sport and, and be a part of that and get some of our you know, former stars a little bit more motivated to, to be back in, in the sport and not have such a negative connotation. And um, in a franchise system, USA Judo would get some of those, those fees and, and monies and royalties for providing the system and providing the structure and co-branding and, and a lot of these things that we're doing, yeah. which would also in turn help the organization to fund appropriately the current generation and the next generation. And I mean, Chuck, you, you grew up the same area that I did where they would fund entire teams and, um, you know, training partners or whatever it may be to, to go to these events, which isn't happening. You know, right. you're, you're struggling as an elite athlete to get by. And, and a lot of that uh, honestly just comes back to, to the world of money. Right. Well, there's definitely some work that we need to do and I'm, I'm excited to uh, continue talking about it and, and hopefully <laughs> taking some action. You know, once, uh, once COVID blows by, hopefully sooner than right. later, I mean, this has really had a negative impact even on my dojo. I, you know, it's been, you know, we're, we're over half a year into this now and most of the dojos around the country are not really, you know, back in action. Some of them are back in action, but they're, they're not really doing judo yet. So, you know, once all yeah. of this blows over, I mean, I, I'm looking forward to hopefully a resurgence of, you know, energy for judo. And I think the whole health and wellness like uh, market is actually going to explode. I think that COVID is telling people, hey, look at your health. The one thing that you do have control over in life is your own health. You know, there's, there's yeah. a lot of variables, you know, at some point we're probably going to get cancer. 
But there's a lot of things that you can have control over with your body and how you treat it and the things you put in your body, the exercise, the amount of time you spend with your family, the things that make you happy and feel better in life. And I think that a lot of people are looking at those a little bit closer now and saying, what, what can I do that makes me happy and healthy? And I hope that judo will fall into that in some way, because it does provide such great opportunity for so many people. <laughs> Absolutely right. You know, and um, I see it on social media. You know, I see just in my feed uh, different, you know, different friends on, on Facebook or what have you uh, taking up taekwondo and some of these other martial arts for the first time and i'm looking at that and i'm going there's an opportunity here you know and um and you can bring some of these you know mothers in and and little kids and maybe there's a a program where where you get introduced to a little bit of judo but it's not so hardcore that you're so sore you don't ever want to come back and um but i think there's an opportunity here to develop judo as a business as well as take advantage of this current market where, like you said, I mean, health and wellness is, is becoming apparent now, right. you know, and, and you got to take care of yourself. You know, you got to take care of yourself every day. And that's right. another piece of advice to, to you athletes out there. Um, you know, when you're done with judo and, and if you're a very competitive judo player, you know, stay active. Um, you know, make sure you continue to work out. And even if you leave the sport, you know, much like I, I did, um, you know, I, I continued to, to run and jump rope and lift weights. And uh, twice a week, I, I run stairs. I can't believe I do that at my age, but uh, <laughs> I, I do run stairs. And, you know, you stay pretty active and that's great for your mind too. So when, once you retire from competition, um, and make sure you stay active daily and, and then jump into your business. It'll, it'll keep your energy up. It'll keep your mind going. Um, and, and you won't become, you know, uh, uh, susceptible to other diseases and, and different things as, as time goes on. Well, Jason, this has been an absolute pleasure, man. You've given us some great advice for everybody out there, including myself. It's always uh, a lot of fun for me to talk to people like you that have had a lot of success in life so we can share our stories, you know, with our immediate judo world, which is, you know, it's a it's a small world, but in some ways, you know, there's a lot of practitioners around the world of judo that don't really get a judo-specific uh, piece of advice. And having somebody that came from the judo world, grew up in the judo world, the judo family, and has had all of the success that you and your family have had outside of judo. It's a, it's a great inspirational story to tell, and I hope that you know people enjoy the story. And I'm going to provide some links to some of the Phoenix uh, brand stuff for people that want to look into what you guys are up to. There's sounds like there's all kinds of amazing things coming in the near future. So we'll be following uh, Phoenix salons, and um, I wish you and your family the best of luck. And and we'll do a follow-up with this. I, I want to get on and, and talk a little yeah, bit awesome. more about this uh, franchising idea. I think there's some things that we can do, but uh, thank you very much, Jason. I, I do appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to JudoCast. Please remember to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. For show notes and additional content, visit JudoCast.com. That's J-U-D-O-Cast.com.